Hello and welcome to Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical with me, your host and your resident art historian, Joe McLaughlin. Welcome back and it is part two of episode 54, the final episode of season two, where I'll be continuing my discussion with art dealer, Will Jarvis, who also runs the art subscription service Gertrude, who at the end of this episode will discuss Gertrude a little bit more in detail and it's really exciting so please do stick around for that. So we're picking up where we left off from part one where Will and I had discussed the early stages of art patronage. Now we move into a very exciting time within the history of the art world where artists are creating out with agreements with patrons, they have a bit more freedom in terms of artistic expression and we look at the rise of auction houses, art dealers, museum shows and how the contemporary art scene is making the art world just ever so slightly more accessible and engaging. So sit back and relax as Will and I continue our conversation for part two of the history of art patronage. Enjoy! We had the last time we spoke, we were talking about the the rise of the the art market as we kind of know it in the beginnings sort of 18th century, 19th century, and there's a whole load of really exciting things that are happening in Europe. So before we hit record, you and I were talking about the 18th century sees the beginning and the foundings of a lot of auction houses. So Bonhams was founded in 1794. Mm-hmm. Sotheby's, which is the oldest, was 1744. Christie's, 1766. And they're still three of the big players in the auction mm-hmm. world today. So it's interesting that they date back so, so far. And then you have really interesting things happening in terms of publishing and the printing press and newspapers, the, the information getting spread across the country with, mm-hmm. with much ease. And artists and um, caricaturists, especially, sort of taking advantage of that with the rise of newspapers. And I was recently at the Hogarth in Europe exhibition at Tate Britain, which I think mm-hmm. was until the end of February. And he's just such an interesting character. And he's somebody that, that you had also sort of touched upon as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a definitely a super important figure for... for um, for art and yeah, in terms of him being an incredible draftsman and printmaker. Um, and yeah, what you're saying about how they kind of proliferate images through, I guess, the new technologies and mediums of the day. Um, but yeah, he, I mean, he wasn't, he was born in, in Suffolk. Mm. He wasn't, I mean, the, he grew up in Gainsborough House. So obviously they weren't, probably weren't short of a penny um but i think from a very young age he was displaying his adept skills at painting and drawing and so that was really kind of spotted by his father Mm. um and encouraged um and he spent yeah his childhood at gainsborough house in sudbury and he resided there after the death of his father and then he moved to ipswich um and yeah i mean he studied, he left home in 1740 to study art in London, and he trained under an engraver called Hubert Gravelot, mm-hmm. but became, he became associated with William Hogarth and his school. So he was kind of under that, in that vein. Yeah. He's, um, he's so interesting in terms of 
for me, I, when I look at Hogarth, I think he's quite scrappy and I think he's really clever. And there's someone else that we're mm. going to talk, talk about later who is a dealer that you and I both love, 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 love. And um, mm-hmm. Hogarth, by all means, wasn't a dealer, but he saw opportunities to sort of bring art to the masses in a way that people could engage with. And he saw essentially a gap in the market, if you will. Um, yeah, he was certainly pragmatic. Yeah, I mean, he definitely saw he's like a kind of, yeah, there was no, there was, I feel like he took no shame in just kind of adapting what he was doing to kind of fit with this, with a, with an emerging market that actually engaged with a different demographic. And I think it's it's symptomatic of wider cultural shifts where there's this growing middle class who are merchant a merchant class and who are trying to get their place at the table and trying to kind of, I guess, art's always been aspirational in a way, even if it is reflecting a wide being sold to and reflecting wider lifestyles or realities, you know, being kind of paintings of real world people, not just these a kind of um, idyllic um, biblical scenes, but something from the, you know, real life. Um, But it's still like a, it's still a thing where the middle classes can use, could use to kind of reposition themselves and become, I guess, establish themselves culturally yeah, and slot, them still, slot themselves almost into a narrative where there was a very narrow gap for them in terms of aristocracy and lineage and things like that if you were new wealth air quotes here mm-hmm. um you know you were very sort of looked down upon from more established wealth and kind of very much vain continues today in, in lots and lots of places but um for me hogarth was so clever in his subscription services so he's kind of really the first person that um founding a subscription service for art and making it more available not so much to the lower classes but a middle class that had access and a little bit more of a disposable income so to speak so to speak yeah yeah I mean Hogarth was incredibly witty in kind of what he created and his it's his political satire that that are kind of, I guess, really kind of, I guess, won people's hearts. Mm. Um, but yeah, again, a real pragmatist, someone that is, someone that is, I mean, it's not dissimilar from stuff that's being looked at today in terms of NFTs and, and new frontiers within technology in relationship to artists being able to monetize what they produce, which now the term would be content in, uh, in, in some senses. Whereas I feel like, you know, this, this, the adapting to certain uh, mediums that lent themselves to mass production. Uh, yeah, there's similarities there. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and also he had a really great way for me anyway, of like spreading himself across the classes. Like he could really appeal to the lower classes, but mm. he made his big bucks whining and dining and sort of getting in with played the game played the game Joe that's it exactly he played the game that I was actually and and like you said he was he's really really witty so I was at that whole Garth and Europe exhibition last week at Tate and what really surprised me was not only his unbelievable skill in portraiture which Mm -hmm. he did a lot of um because he was known as being really witty well well off patrons would be like okay so I want you to paint this portrait of my husband so I'm thinking of a really good example here of um, Mm. the woman who commissioned Hogarth to paint a portrait of 
her husband. All seems very fair, but there was an ulterior motive behind the portraiture. And Hogarth at this point had like established himself as like one of the leading artists in the UK. Yeah. He'd said, right, listen, he's got a bit of a drink problem. So I'm trying to hit this home. Can you depict that <laughs> in your portrait? And the portrait, wow. which is in Tate, is the husband throwing up after a heavy night out into a bedpan and she presents wow, so it's like a, as a gift. It's like, that's amazing. So it's like a kind of visual um, attempt at, um, it's an intervention. It's like yeah. a visual intervention. It is a visual intervention. It's publicly it's displayed. So yeah. You've got this problem and this is often what I come home to, but now here it is emblazoned by uh, one of our finest artists. Of the UK, here we go. <laughs> maybe, maybe lay off the gin. And I just thought that is so witty and clever. And I just would, I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall in that conversation. Him being like, absolutely, I will th show me the bed chambers. I will recreate them. Let me see your husband. Let me do a couple of sketches. And I just mean, it's to keep. It's, ama it's amazing because you just don't. I feel like our relationship to to art history is always very formal, and perhaps yeah. it's to do with the context in which we're reading it. These museums these kind of heavy texts you know it's it's all quite formal and yet there's of course like there's humor there's always been humor and of course artists engage with humor as they do today and it's that's an amazing uh, that's an amazing story yeah and it's um it's not always again we sort of look at these very very formal things um you know the history of arts is very formal telling and that if you know artists got on well with their patrons but that really wasn't always the case though I mean there's someone else that you mentioned before we had record who's Thomas Gainsborough who was one of the UK's like oh my goodness like superstar artists and I think he again round about the time he came to Providence um sort of 1700s and mm -hmm. he was really key in helping establish or was one of the founding members of the Royal Academy of Arts, I believe. Yeah, he was invited to join the, be a founding member with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which, so I've got the date here. So the Royal Academy opened in 1764. And why these things are, are important just for people listening is this is the first time that artist societies are really starting to form where artists are sort mm. of coming out of their studio, meeting as collectives in the same room and thinking, oh, we can put on exhibitions or we can we can do this. And they're starting to consolidate and wield their own power. Yeah, yeah as, exactly. as cultural import, like important cultural contributors uh, in terms of the intellectual side. Mm. I think yeah, that's really key in terms of isms that then evolve. It's not. It's no longer merely the kind of the product of a, a patron realizing something. It's it's the artists themselves starting to hold the power and wield it. Yeah, absolutely. And being inspired by lots of different things. You know, um, also at this time, I think the the British Museum opened sort of late 1700s as well. They had the patronage, the Royal Academy had the patronage of, I think it was King George III at the time was on the throne, if it was 1760. And yeah, just to have that sort of, I don't know, royal tip of the cap, if you will, to be like, yeah, you guys can get together and, and create and do whatever and speak and, and see what happens. And also at this time as well, yeah. there were, science societies forming and all sorts of really interesting things were happening. The theatre scene in, in London was kicking off, trade coming in and out. So there was a lot more interesting things happening as well. Yeah, and, and also little innovations within what's being produced by the artists themselves. So if it's, for example, in the 1770s, 1780s, Gainsborough developed a type of portrait in which he integrated the sitter 
into the landscape. Uh -huh. So again, if you're thinking about someone showing off their acreage, showing off like where they are within society, that's the kind of perfect example of, of, of a way in which they could do so. True, this is really true. And like, there's that really famous one of, of Gainsborough, the Mr. and Mrs. Andrews, which is in the National Gallery. And I remember as an art history student being told, oh, this is really important for that reason. They're showing off their wealth of their land. And then mm. with the clothes that they were wearing, it was a way of showing their, their personal wealth as well as the land that they have and some servants are working the land in the background. And there's like a gap in Mrs. Andrew's lap. So it's, the portrait isn't finished and art wow. students have spent forever trying to want like sort of figuring <laughs> out was it because like they had a fallout and like he stopped painting or was it because they were going to have a baby because that was another one as well that showed the lineage is strong if there was children particularly sons um but yeah I because I, I think he was quite feisty Gainsborough he got a bit too big for his boots sort of a modern day like I'm excellent um yeah, from some swagger yeah <laughs> but again what we're trying to sort of come back to is the, the rise of the artist creating for art's sake and not having um not having a need to have a patron in order in order to create and I think functioning you know, this mm. but I, I wonder I also wonder what the kind of I guess the upper class is made of all of this and I'm sure they probably saw it as quite gaudy and tacky the fact that there's all of these this nouveau riche these kind of upstarts that are employing these artists to paint these really showy images i mean it's you know instagram of today is like <laughs> i wonder if it's like it probably was in a similar par it's like the medium of the day to show this thing where someone's trying to yeah show off essentially yeah that's it and then that's kind of where things like the royal academy summer exhibition sort of founded was them kind of showing what they had done out with what they'd been sort of commissioned to do and it was a way that people could come along see their skill commission them or buy their paintings and the money going straight to the artist and they're not being a dealer involved in some way so mm -hmm. there's lots of really interesting things happening even in like the auction world side of things they're taking out advertisements in newspapers trying to like drum up interest of sales that are happening in the capital so it's all things that don't really seem exciting or revolutionary mm -hmm. to us nowadays with Instagram and whatever else we digest so many things in a day in terms of visuals and information but for here this was like really the cutting edge oh my yeah. gosh oh yeah. my gosh yeah absolutely and these things as well happening in you know similar uh, foundations and academies happening in France and in Germany and and Europe and sort of things starting to move between the countries um, yeah, it's just, it's such an interesting time. It's really, and then you move into like the 19th century, so like the 1800s. And in terms of, as you put it really nicely, isms, this is when people start moving away from having a patron. They kind of start working with dealers, but there's just kind of this explosion of creativity for the sake of creating. Yeah, for sure. So yeah i mean i think someone that we were chatting about earlier that's super interesting is the is the famed uh, art dealer uh, joseph tavine who's probably a who's a pioneer of 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 dealing art and he really kind of he set the precedent that a lot of people have actually followed i know that 
um, he there was a biography written about him that mm-hmm. many big dealers today have read. For example, um, I know Lagdagosian has cited it as something that's been quite influential. And there's, yeah, it, essentially Devine was very clever. He didn't really, he wasn't, he wasn't working with living artists, but what he saw and what he, he cleverly took advantage of was there's this, the new world was emerging. There's this nouveau riche over there. These, these essentially billionaires of the day um, the, the oil barons, uh, Henry Ford, all of these people that are really coming up and they have, because of how young the country is, mm-hmm. there's almost like, there's almost, there's a need to prove themselves in a cultural sphere so that, so that where they sit culturally or their lack of lineage can be made up for and sit in parallel to their wealth. And so what Duveen used to do was essentially mine the cultural artifacts of Europe yeah. and um, collate them and resell them to this nouveau riche so they would then have works that had been previously owned by the royal families of, of, of Europe and therefore they could feel worthy of their, their new fiscal status in a sense. Um, but he did lots of really clever, um, very kind of dealery things. He would, do, he, would, he would probably one of the first dealers to tell someone they couldn't have something. Yeah. So, I think that's very much gets employed today. Um, but he would he would do something, say for example, he'd have a client coming over and he'd get them he'd get them to be shown in and he'd he'd be in a, a room at the far end and there'd be a kind of corridor, open room corridor space, and there'd be some paintings lined up in that corridor. And the, the client would be instructed to come through to meet Joseph Devine and they'd see these works on their way through and they'd they'd ask, of course they'd ask about them, they'd be beautiful works. And they're, they're inquisitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joseph would basically say, oh, no, sorry, those aren't, those aren't for you. Those, you know, they're, you know, they're really expensive. I wasn't really thinking for your collection. And of course, the clients, these are people that are used to getting their anything they want. His understanding mm-hmm. of human psychology and especially the psychology of a super wealthy elite who are who are so used to having everything they want whenever they want it and actually I think a lot of contemporary dealers today yeah. tap into the same thing and it's it's making things hard to get makes them more alluring I mean I guess it's a in a weird way it's a bit like dating it's a bit like a courtship <laughs> where where something's being held back it it, it kind of um, increases the uh, desire for something so yeah he was very clever in that way i mean he did so originally he he basically inherited his his family's stock which was a combination of some art and also various um artifacts and antiques but then he actively sought out to buy works from europe and from these kind of ailing royalty to bring over to the us and he he did lots of clever things one of the things he did was this he started publishing these books for his collectors that had a number of their artworks in and then there would be artworks they should aspire to also in the <laughs> books and only once only once you get all the works that that Devine's picked for you do you get a special stamp of approval he was very much the architect of these collections and you know he also he marked up prices in an extreme way mm. and in a ridiculous way but it was it's yeah again it's the psychology it's it's him being seen as the most esteemed dealer of the time. And he was really savage to his rivals and 
slated them often and there was a lot of weird dealing that went around like the same work he would slate he would he would do things like suggest something would smell a bit like paint like it's just been forged it smells a bit like wet paint (laughs) and then maybe the same painting a few years later he'd offer to someone else that he'd actually got from the dealer that he was kind of besmirching so he was yeah he was a he was a he was a tricky character um um, I am completely fascinated by Devine. I think, and like he is considered the greatest art dealer of all time. And there's been several biographies written about him. He had his own biographer um, write something mm-hmm. when he was still alive. He was just like he was the man that's really sort of brought branding into the art world because it was a it was a sort of tip of the cap in that sort of society if you could afford to buy mm-hmm. something from Devine. Kind of like mm-hmm. what Bogosian is today, like, oh my God, you know, that, that sort of bragging right almost. He was, he's yeah. so fascinating, but so dodgy, so dodgy. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a, like dealers are a bit wily. They're a bit like, a bit wily, sorry. They're a bit wily and they've got a kind of, they've got an edge and they've got an awareness. And there's a bit of cunning, but I think there needs to be. It's, mm. I don't know, I think that's part of the fun of it. It's, yeah, I, there was something that actually, when I was reading uh, his biography that m- actually, Kind of made me feel a bit better about all of this because when you're reading about this obscene wealth and this kind of like single-mindedness of the pursuit of a collection and everything that's spent and it just feels kind of mad that the thing that brought it round for me is actually when these people died when these collectors died they ended up being the foundation of the american museums yeah. and so it, it goes full circle in a weird way it's like they end up being a gift to the general public and there's there's something quite wonderful about that actually and, and it feels a little bit reassuring in terms of looking at capitalism and going oh like there's there's a journey there and some of it you might not be into but some of the end result can be beneficial for all and I think that's that's the positive. Yeah no absolutely and I think something really sort of timely while we're recording our conversation one of the paintings one of the sort of the best known paintings that I think had gone through Devine if not uh, his sort of Oh my goodness. One of his friends, Bernard Bennerson mm-hmm. or something like that, he mm-hmm. uh Gainsborough's Blue Boy, which has just come mm-hmm. back to the National Gallery, which I think was I think uh... sure it was sold through Devine. And it was as like one of the most expensive paintings ever sold privately through a dealer. Wow. And went to a collection in America. And it's since it's left, it's never been back in the UK and it's come back to the National Gallery. And it's here until I think Mayor or June 2022 and then it's straight back in to a collection wow. but just how funny that we're having this conversation and that yeah like it fits in I mean it, yeah. yeah I mean it it does also go to say though that actually we're still feeling the effect of his legacy today mm-hmm. in many ways the fact and also getting those back I don't know we can't look at we as a species what we do is appropriate and everything gets mixed around and actually probably Britain needs to give a lot of things back when you look at our museums but in another sense it's like there's lots of paintings like when they go into the private field they are kind of could be lost for you know x amount of time and that you know you really feel the effect of that and actually thinking about yeah there's a whole wing when you go to the Tate Britain there's a whole wing devoted to Joseph Devine Mm. um, which is nice to see again his legacy kind of there yeah, and it's the same with the British Museum. So he was he was knighted, and essentially he used he made so much money that he um, at the British Museum anyway he paid for an extension, and that's the extension called the Devine Galleries, which is where the uh, Pathal on Marbles are. 
um, mm. where there's again culture appropriation, like they were essentially stolen. They were, and they yeah. should go yeah. back. Um, but that's where they house them and Devine galleries in the Tate as well, because um, before there was Tate Britain and Tate Modern, Tate was just mm -hmm. Tate, and I think it was called something previous before, but it was at the end of sort of the 1800s that it was founded. And again, Devine put money towards building the uh, building part of it, hence the Devine gallery. Mm. But yeah, like you said, you know, he's everywhere and completely yeah. in plain sight, but he's he's a legend for me and I would say anybody that's interested like there is plenty plenty of brilliant reading and listening about Joseph Devine as well so I would definitely say he is yeah he really set the bar and like you said previously people like you know Jay Joplin have like said his biography was a cornerstone yeah. of oh my gosh I think it's kind of compulsory reading for any for any any young dealer basically because yeah. it yeah he just kind of he got that and it's the psychology it's the psychology of it because essentially especially with contemporary art you're taking something that transcends its materiality mm. like often it, the material of the thing is very low physical low value but the idea of the thing is 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 incredibly high and it's how do you how do you how do you how do you get that across to someone? So you really do have to tap into psychology and, and the tone and the, the way in which things are kind of contextually framed. Like those things are super important to, to, to getting someone to believe in, to believe in it. And it's, it's, it's an applied narrative often. So, you know, you need that belief or yeah. you're just left with the material. No, I, I think that's a really sort of quite poignant point there actually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I love that. And then he sort of led the way for dealers like, I mean, Peggy Guggenheim, who is mostly considered mm. a collector, but was a dealer in her own right. You know, she had a great, she had a gallery in London before she went to New York. And then she moved over to Venice where she did a lot of, again, and, you know, completely cornerstone figure in terms of allowing the market and artists to move across borders and show in different places. Really, really key. Um, then Leo Castelli, of course, he's another one who is who I had never heard of actually until about a year and a bit ago, and I picked up um, a book called yeah. Rogue Dealers, and there's a whole <laughs> chapter dedicated to him. And I was like, oh my god, this guy was like so forward thinking, and again, like the psychology and just understanding how people tick. Yeah, yeah. I guess when I think of Leo, I do think because the book I read about him was Leo Leo Castelli and his circle. And it oh does... yeah. It does for me it speaks volumes of this whole thing speaks volumes about class and it was a lot of the best dealers ultimately are actually pretty much born into a class of they've got a ready-made collector base that they're yeah. their peers that yeah. they're born into and so often it is this thing that's like one one self-determines to be a kind of tastemaker and then they're 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 floating these these works by this kind of social group and you know, exploits different competitive aspects of each of individuals or collaborative aspects of individuals. Um, but yeah, I think there's quite a clear lineage from Leah Castelli into Logagosian as well. I think there was crossovers. I think I think I feel like Larry worked for him when he was yeah. super young. There was some kind of crossover. Yeah, he um, well, Leo he took a, a lease in Leo's building in New York, and Leo essentially was like, "Here's my Rolodex." It's there you it. go. And Leo was so good at that though. Like he was very like, oh, I can help you with this, or 
here's some contacts. Um, so from my it didn't have it didn't have children, did he? It didn't have kids that were that were going into that. Not that I can remember. I, there was no mention of kids when when I've when I've because I, I feel like getting a gallery to a certain stage, especially the stage he had it. It's like you want its legacy in some way to continue, and I think that that's what that was. It was seeing Larry Gagosian as that 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 person to kind of take it on after him. Yeah, and he also had the ear of Charles Saatchi as well. Actually, Charles Saatchi mm. very famously, um, you know, at one point sort of the eighties, nineties, whenever he stepped into a gallery, it was kind of considered that was the seal of approval of oh my god, this artist is the next sort of up and coming thing. Let's snap it up. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was also very good friends with uh, with Castelli as well. So yeah, like you said, it, but um, Saatchi immensely wealthy immensely well mm -hmm. from advertising mm -hmm. so again moved in those sorts of circles so I think that's something that you that is a good point well, I, I, I was just going to say I think I always find Sarchi a really interesting person to look at especially with the artwork of the YBAs because mm -hmm. he was an advertising guy and so much of that work was like two hit you think it's that but it's that it was very like do 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 it was quite and I remember being really compelled by um, Sensation Show when I was like 15 and seeing it and seeing some works that I just, it blew my mind that this is contemporary art. Um, but it, it did operate in the same realm as that you think is this thing, but it's this thing. And, it, and it, I really think like his contribution there is, is huge because that whole kind of strata of artists had a similar vein or feel that is very much in line with what he did. Mm. Do you know, I don't ever think I've met anybody my age that saw the Sensations exhibition at the RA, which was for anyone that doesn't know, this is this essentially the show that sort of catapulted the YBAs, the young British artists, people like Damien Hurst, um, oh my goodness, Mark Quinn, Tracy Emin, Sarah Lucas, these people, um, Marcus Harvey, onto like the world stage and every like art world kind of like turned their eyes to London and, and was like, Shit, there's something really exciting going on there. I've just checked the date of it and I, I didn't go to the original one. Oh, did you know? I was <laughs> I like, would have been like 10. I would have been like 10. <laughs> I'd have been like nine. No, I went to like a re one. I oh, went to like a remake. That even so. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the same artists were in the show, Sarah Lucas, etc. cetera. Um, who was the artist that made the giant head and dead dad and they were proper realistic? The giant. What's his name? Marcus Harvey? No. No, dead dad. He Ron Muick. Ron, Ron Muick. Ron, do you remember Ron Muick? He was. He's probably now a little bit forgotten, but he made. He made his background was in like movies, and um, it was it was in kind of like effects. And he made oh, his best piece was Dead Dad. Okay. And he made all of these really realistic like bodies, giant heads or tiny bodies, and yeah, I remember those really stood out to me at the time because I was just. They were they were freakish, yeah, and incredible. But I think in terms of coming back to patronage, what sort of yeah. these big shows do is help kind of solidify an artist's validity in terms of prices and why they're interesting. And that's something that because Leo Castelli he was a dealer, but he had a gallery space. I think for me, when I think dealer, I think somebody that's kind of like cutting around. You think purely yeah, secondary market. Take yeah. from this guy, sell yeah, to this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Whereas Le someone like Leo and Gagosian, you know, they're selling what's you know straight from the artist studio you know paint still mm -hmm. drying sort of thing um, mm -hmm. and they 
they're so influential in, in terms of shaping collectors tastes up-and-coming things yeah I th it's it's I, they're doing they're cultivating two veins they're cultivating the vein of the artist and they're encouraging the artist and they're helping to kind of steer the direction of the work and they're contextualizing the work but also they're doing the same for the collector because actually no one's a ready-made collector and it's it's it like it's like a muscle it needs working and so when someone has like a natural inclination towards something cultural or has their own way of seeing things that needs nurturing as well and i think really the really good dealers do that they they're, they're working with their collectors to kind of they're all on their own journeys but they're all trying to you know they're trying to massage it to to get the most out of it and to really kind of connect with their taste and get confident and you know contribute it's a, it's a in some senses it's a huge privilege to be able to be a collector and contribute to what the what is deemed culture you know, and, and, and collectors that are there at the right time. And it's not that their their role isn't passive, their role is incredibly active. And it's the same for in the current day and age where, you know, if you, certain collectors have the eye and the act of them engaging with the work really helps build the momentum for it and other people see it. So they're really, they're, they're architects in the market. They're not, they're not passive actors and they're not just chasing a thing. It's a collective effort that's all kind of woven together that, that brings an artist from obscurity and into the focus. Mm, I think that's beautifully put and completely, yeah, explains why places like museums and dealers and collectors are important. There is this, like you mm. said, this mechanism, everyone's sort of, everyone's an important cog in the machine sort of working together and, and moving forward and things and that's what's exciting about it because particularly now you know anyone with any sort of wealth ability in, in terms of disposable income can become a collector nowadays it's mm. not it's not as we've gone through time the circle has opened more and more and more and it's there's the yeah, it's continuing to open, but it's still quite a closed off industry mm. and there's pros and cons. That's mm. complicated. Maybe we'll get to that because I was thinking maybe we should talk a little bit about Robert and Ethel Skull. Yeah. So this you mentioned to me this really amazing. So obviously we've spoken about the importance of galleries and collectors and how they're very active. And you mentioned an auction to me. Yeah. So this yeah. is a really a really pivotal moment in terms of forging the contemporary art market that we see today and it was there's a, a collecting couple called Robert and Ethel Skull who were collecting in the early 70s late 60s um, and you know people like Rauschenberg um, a lot of the kind of American ab abstraction artists mm -hmm. um, but essentially he was at the time auction houses of existed for you know 150 years at this time but they were never they'd never they'd never done an auction of contemporary art and so he basically put together it was i think around 50 artworks from his collection um and it was uh, named after them and basically he went and uh, he was a, an incredible self-publicist so he hyped this up got all this energy around this auction he hyped it up there was loads of interest. There was, you know, people, it was being filmed. Um, it became a really big deal. And what happened was that he, 
it went really well. And Robert, Robert Rauschenberg, who'd obviously been selling him a number of works, was at the auction. And I think he, he, he tried to punch uh, Robert for, uh, he either tried to, he either swang for him, something like aggressive. Um, but Robert's response was like, well, so Rauschenberg's annoyed because basically the work that he'd sold uh, Robert Skull has now, he's just seen it sold for like five or 10 times the value he'd originally sold it. So he's like, what the hell? Like, I thought you bought this because you love it. Mm -hmm. But Robert Skull's response, which is gold, was that, well, now you can sell your work at this price because I've just validated it in, in the market, mm -hmm. you know? And so it, it did something quite incredible. And, and I think you can see Rauschenberg, <laughs> there's video footage of it somewhere. I've seen it a while ago. You can see Rauschenberg just like, digesting it <laughs> oh, oh actually maybe it is a really good thing but I think that marked a, uh, a real kind of turning point in the energy that we now see present and there you know auctions yeah auctions play a role they're, yeah. they're not a lot of people's favorite thing um, because they can be detrimental to young artists especially mm -hmm. to young artists um, but there's a certain energy that come out of them and there's a certain there's there's a hunger to pull people in to this industry from them. And, you know, some of those people can end up being collectors that actually kind of cultivate their sense of taste with galleries and with artists. Mm. So for all of their, um, yeah, all of their, all the potential disdain they're often looked at with their, they, they, they play a role that I think is quite important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in terms of going back a little bit to the seal that you, you were just talking about, the, the skull seal, do mm. is was that with Sotheby's or Christie's or anybody like that? Any of the big four? It or was, was it? a big one. Sotheby's. 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 Because nowadays a big named collection like that is a really exciting event. Like I remember, maybe you remember this as well, when when Bowie died and his collection went to Sotheby's and it was like a three-day we're selling half of Bowie's collection and yeah. And he was a big sort of post-war mod Brit. Uh, collector you get they're, they're interesting things because you get you get you get the work that's there but you also really get a flavor for the for the collector yeah you know understanding which, which combinations of what pieces they bought I mean I guess for me I always think it's it's complicated because some people are saying attain a certain level of wealth and they end up getting an advisor and the advisor's often end up moving in the same sphere so they end up with like a top a top trumps like list of artworks by artists and yeah. often those works kind of fall out of favor because they've been very hot for a bit and then they they are no longer for me it's always much more compelling when the collector really gets to stand on their own two feet advisors are important but they're there to help cultivate that collector's taste and i think you know when when you see someone that you're already interested in, you see the work that they have actually collected. I think it is, it is a, it's quite, it's quite an amazing spectacle, really. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it says so much about the person and, and their taste. And I think also an important point to make: you and I both work in the art world, and I think we would never advise it. anyone that's good at their job in the art world. You would never advise anybody to buy something for an investment. You have to, no. you have to live with it. You have to like it. Why would you waste your energy? And money mm -hmm. but there are plenty of people that do that there are sort of bonded warehouses all over the world where these amazing paintings are sort of languishing in storage never to see the light of day again 
and it's a it's a big business the art world there's a lot of you know a lot of big banks that have amazing art collections some of which they put on display some of which is are kept in vaults and and it was something like in 2008 when the, when the market crashed the art world was really one of the only markets that didn't really in any sort of way because people yeah. were like great these things will hold their value so mm-hmm. it's such an interesting world to move within and there's so many different layers of patronage and what's right and what's wrong and what's what's unfair yet that's just the rules of the game and what happens it's um it's incredibly it's incredibly interesting and to see how for me anyway museums and galleries have kind of been like working with and against each other mm. more so with than than against um just all over the world it's just it's incredibly interesting and then there's new ways of collecting and getting involved and and supporting artists and starting collections that are developing all the time which I think kind of very nicely leads us on to what you do at yes okay great um yeah well I guess yeah to give a rundown um I've previously been running a gallery um which is the Sunday Painter which is still running at the hat now Harry Beer is leading the way and doing great stuff and that's all going really well we love it it's based in Vauxhall um but we we got to a point in 2021 uh during the pandemic the height of the pandemic and we were just kind of actually it was before just before the pandemic we were really just thinking through like what's missing in this industry and what what feels frustrating and what feels a bit limited um and it was kind of forged out of a couple of experiences we'd been doing freeze art fair for the previous five years in a row with a you know we'd have a booth there and for the first two days we'd have vips come and we basically sell out usually all the work or the major pieces and then the next three or four days us and all of the galleries are kind of there just with the general public and just fielding questions that to the galleries seem kind of inane and silly like are you the artist but to the general public that seems perfectly reasonable yeah and the galleries are kind of you know rolling their eyes because to be fair they're paying a lot of money every day to be there and that clearly these people aren't don't have the ability to be potential buyers however what that shows you is that there's thousands of people with an interest in art and these people are paying you know between 30 and 50 pounds for a ticket just to be adjacent to the art for one afternoon yeah and, and that alongside the fact that galleries like ours and many others i mean our gallery had literally thousands maybe at one thousand fifteen hundred works in storage and then other galleries have loads more than that it just felt like wow there's this there's this interest here and there's this artwork here and then to kind of complete the trifecta there's literally artists the majority of them are even if they're in the system the majority of them are still through having periods of being borderline impoverished where the average income of an artist from their practice is eight thousand pounds a year that's across the board that's mm. aggregated um and so it's just realizing that that this the world's changing anyway and the, the existing art market is is conservative and elements of it have the right to be and, and it is important that key works go to key collectors that's an important part of building a career for an artist mm-hmm. however there's a whole other demographic that should be allowed some access to work and their access whose access could be 
monetized for the benefit of the artist mm -hmm. and so that's what we're really trying to do it's like you know yes the, the brand new works can be if they're shown with a gallery that's great they shouldn't be on the platform for six months but you know after that let's get some works on the platform and allow people to um you know subscribe basically the the model is that it's an art subscription service so mm. you can the artworks are bet valued between 1000 and 10000 pounds and any artwork can be lived with for 50 pounds a month but 80% of the money you put in every month stays in your account as credit mm. so if you ever want to buy an artwork you can use that as a discount against the cost so it's a it's a very gentle way of walking people through the process of getting to live with art and potentially eventually buying a work um and yeah hopefully at the moment what we're trying to develop is we're trying to build a platform that doesn't just deal with a one-dimensional purely financial offering it gets into the heart of what artists do you know you can read about the artist you can learn about what they're into maybe you can watch an interview with them the kind of content side we're, we're wanting to push so that individuals can, who know nothing about art can get on and start navigating their own journey in, and learn about their own taste and kind of and have the excitement of engaging with contemporary art. Yeah, well, that's it. And I think what really excites me is at any point you can just say, OK, I'm I, I'm actually I want to try a different painting so you can swap things out as well. So there's actually there's a lot of room for fun and a bit of play within your collection. And it's not yeah. necessarily to say that you can't then say, oh, no, I, I, I prefer that one. Let's let's maybe get that one back. And it's it's just a different way of offering people a service and seeing what these contemporary works are like in your house and taking out that very scary gallery model for a lot of people. I mean, I worked I work in the art world and there's still some galleries now that when I need to ring a bell and go up a staircase, I'm a mm. bit like, oh God, are they going to think what the hell is she doing? <laughs> you know, and and they are intimidating. Yeah. They, they are that they're, they're important. They're really important in the whole cog and the whole whole yeah the whole machine that they play a really important role but i think like the way wider trends are happening within consumers not just i don't want to say consumers because it feels degrading but mm. wider cultural trends are towards openness and connectivity yeah. and access and we need to start making room for more people to have that and i think for me the most exciting bit and the key point is that that the many can start to participate and contribute to what is represented as our culture, because art is a representation of all of us for an era. It's here to represent us. And for too long, it's been only dictated by an incredibly narrow few yeah. from a specific socioeconomic background. And something like Gertrude gives us the opportunity for our collective voice to be heard. You know, if 10 people are subscribing to an artist, that's the equivalent of a sale. And that, that artist starts to have a career and you get to join the journey of that and watch them kind of grow and flourish and you know become better at what they do and i think the 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 active element of it is is what excites me it's a living thing yeah that we're and engaging with yeah you are in in terms of if you're looking at traditional methods really you are the next generation of patrons you are a, mo a modern day patron yeah. and you're yeah. opening up that that field for people, which is so exciting because you you just don't know where that artist is going to go. 
and just to be just even to feel part of it at, at a base level and allow them space to create and have an income and you enjoy their work it's mm -hmm. it's really exciting and mm. it's a change that like you said is needed there's that one percent that have kind of pointed their finger and dictated this is how you do it but what's really exciting about all these sort of new digital elements such as subscription services that there's ways that the the model can modify and change and, and become more inclusive which is really really exciting yeah absolutely i mean it's yeah we just it's also knowing like i've been in in the art world for over a decade and i feel like in that time i've i've seen incredible artists kind of disappear because there's not the support and they've not been ignited in the way and it's just and even for the consumer it feels like currently you you can either buy a poster <laughs> or you're expected to drop like two or three grand on an artwork that you've never lived with and if you don't want it there's no there's no returns policy galleries yeah. aren't happy about that that doesn't work for them um mm. which is fine so but let's just find this middle ground and you know and also maybe you've got artist friends that you want to help support and yeah you, know, you love their work and you don't want them to have to default and change you know you don't want to meddle with their prices but you want to you know, support in some them. way absolutely yeah. for me what I really like about it and you, you haven't mentioned it yet is that you also when you buy your subscription you come in and you install the work in the person's house for them because as someone that used to work in a gallery that is the question when someone bought their first piece of artwork there was a whole load of excitement around it and then the next question was how on earth did I put this on my wall yeah that I mean the, the the logistics that's the other thing the logistics are, are quite a nightmare and also even like costs are added and da, da, da. I mean with us it's there's a there's a slight admin fee but then after that it's like free yeah free delivery and free installation unless we if it's a very small work and the customer wants to hang it that's fine but otherwise we're here we're here to kind of make the whole process enjoyable and easy and people are people are understandably scared of artwork that has high values and I get that but it needn't be scary and you know the whole it's insured and the whole process has been worked out by us and you know it's it does take the headache out of the whole process and yeah makes it quite fun yeah and it's named after Gertrude Stein who correct me if yeah. she was a, a patron a very good patron arts patron yeah she um discovered uh Picasso amongst others oh just just a casual find one Sunday yeah Good old Picasso. Wow, amazing. And how can people like find Gertrude? How can they get involved? Like what talk us through what... just um so yeah, it's the website is www.gertrude.com. Uh the Instagram handle is Gertrude underscore underscore art. Um yeah, go on either of those um and have a look and it's it's all there, or you can contact me. You could <laughs> I could give you my email address. It's will yeah. at gertrude.com. If you have yeah. any questions, totally happy to chat. Um, yeah, we're just keen to, it's, it's a, still at the early stages, but we're very keen to engage with people that are interested in them. And if you have questions, I want to hear those. Those those are really helpful for us to help program a, a, a platform that, that takes all the barriers out of the process, yeah. basically. And, you know, this the project or, or the, the subscription service has legs do you know what I mean like there is there potential for 
you know, potentially like touring shows or, you know, to get it like out and about? There's, there's, yeah, I mean, we're we're up for that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of potential in lots of different ways. Uh, from the artist's viewpoint, there's ample room for this to become more like an elements of an artist agency being there. Although we're a subscription service, we've actually sold quite a lot of works in the last few months. Um, that's happened quite organically out of the model that we've got, but it actually, because of our history, doing that as a job, uh, as a team, we're quite good at it. So from the artist viewpoint, it's, it's quite solid and also our percentages. So, you know, the customer pays 50 pounds a month for any work, but the artist gets 25 pounds and we get 25 pounds we cover all of the the costs and the headache of logistics shipping insurance handling uh, those things but if a sale happens the artist gets 80 percent and we get 20 percent. so on that side compared to the normal 50 50 with a sale from a gallery it's, that's very very good for the artist mm. um, but in terms of the customer yeah i mean the, there's no end to what it could evolve into and we do we do want to do some more kind of physical physical exhibitions and physical stuff. And also I'm actually, you know, I, I grew up in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere and I definitely would like to bring something like this to places like that because it's, it's, it's our shared culture and it's a, it's a joy to be part of. And, you know, the artworks out there and the artists are out there. So let's just, let's just make it work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And find, I love that idea of like finding more opportunities to like get into tiny little villages I grew up in a really tiny little town as well mm. in Glasgow and an art gallery wasn't even in sniffing distance let alone ever yeah, in a totally. with me growing up so it's um it's always lovely to see support you know support of an underdog support of people you know following their passion um, yeah it's 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 also that thing of it being like you know it's totally innate with us it's it's so part of our shared history every child draws every child is creative um and how is it that we're living in a time where like you can literally do anything with your phone at the at, the, at your fingertips and yet 99 percent of people can't live with an artwork mm, yeah well i think though that's that's a different conversation for a different day i think that's years of feeling like the space is elitist which we have said yeah yeah and that they're not welcome there and it's also part of your it's part of your sort of infrastructure really you know if you're if you're brought up not going into museums and galleries absolutely yeah when I go into museums and galleries when you're older yeah. like it's just not part of how you tick and for me it was a chance conversation that I ended up studying art history and mm. when I first started going into these spaces I felt like I didn't belong and it's only through constant exposure to it that I'm sort of like mm. oh no actually who who on earth and there's so much work that goes into even in a private gallery logistics wise getting works in and out timing putting together catalogues they don't do that for no one to walk in so the yeah totally in some way. like we, we needs to be friendlier more people need to get involved like you're welcome in these spaces and it's a it's a it's a tricky one because I felt when we we opened the a gallery and opened the Sunday Painter in Vauxhall in 2017 and we built the space purposefully with these massive transparent windows in the hope that like we could engage with some of the local audience but it's actually even though we feel that it's welcoming it's actually still really intimidating yeah. it's still really hard there's like a psychological barrier that this isn't meant for me or or I'm gonna somehow you know they can't they're going to try and sell to me or something like that where it's like no actually 
there's so much of this free culture that's on display. Yeah. Um, but we do need to, it's a, it's a wider class issue about, about accessibility and yeah, considering, I don't know. The facade it's, of it. I think it's the facade that needs, that needs a, mm. a revamp and a refresh. And I don't, I don't know how you tackle that though on, on such a, on such a wide scale, but I do think something like Gertrude is a, a fabulous way to dip your toe in to yeah. Yeah. having it in your home and feeling that you can live with it and engage with it because there's so many people that are that have grown up looking at screens and will buy some mm. screen and I mean I think you and I have both seen that in 2020 and 2021 working in the art world the amount yeah. of that have gone through if you'd said this to us five years ago you know people will buy it without having laid an eye on it in any way shape or form we would have been like yes. there's no way and it's completely changed and it's changing all the time. And even like NFTs, that's a whole other complicated yeah. thing that's getting people excited and involved and could spin off into a podcast lasting five hours. But to say, <laughs> um, thank you so much for talking to me about the history of art patronage. It's been, a, it's been really interesting for me to go back and sort of see it all and, and how it all very nicely sort of comes together. And I'm really excited to see what happens with Gertrude and you've got some brilliant artists on there and I'm thank you see what happens now I don't know if you've listened to the podcast previously but I end by asking my guests one question that's quite a big one and you can take it as large or as personal to yourself but my question is why is art important Wow, um, that is quite the question. Yeah, I think because it, it transcends our material our material existence, it speaks of something. It's it's such a big umbrella. I'm not. This is not going to be concise. That's all right. <laughs> so, That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big. It's such a big umbrella, but it uh, within it, it contains so much of us it's hopes and dreams it's despairs it's it's kind of everything it's like a it's a parallel psyche it's a kind of shadow self i don't know it's yeah it's it somehow encapsulates humanity i think yeah i think it's for me and I, something that happens again when i ask people this question it always comes back to language and expression like it mm. for me art is the thing that completely anchors me in moments of despair mm. and can transcend me in, in moments mm. of joy and, and ecstasy and and that goes in all sorts of different forms for art that's you know what I'm looking at visually or what I'm listening to what I'm wearing you know like it's, mm. it's so powerful and it's everywhere and for me I think it's so many people don't understand you know we've spoke a little bit there about how people are in, in, scared to like engage in these spaces but art is all around you, really, when you break down mm -hmm. everything that you do, the clothes you wear, the images that you print out and put on your wall, the phone that you buy, you, the car you drive, all sorts of things. Everything's mm -hmm. designed in, in some way. And it's, yeah, that's to me why it's so important. Well, thank you so, so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. No, thank you. And there you have it, the end of another episode of Joe's Art History Podcast and the end of season two. 
I would just like to thank Will for being such a fantastic final guest for the season and I really loved recording this and researching with Will. It was a very um, meaty topic and we were very, very ambitious in terms of what we think we could sort of cover within the time frame. But I think we did a really great job and I really hope it's given you a very good whistle-stop tour and overview of the history of art patronage and has helped you to think about questions and want to seek the answers to them. As I've said, this is the final episode of season two, but fear not friends, Joe's Art History Podcast will return later in 2022 for a brand new season filled with lots more wonderful guests and episodes where we discuss the history of art in all its forms. So we will be returning, not to fear. If you've enjoyed the podcast and you would like to get in touch to discuss anything you've heard in this episode or previous episodes, it's always great to hear from you. You can email me, joesarthistory at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at joesarthistory. My DMs are always open and I really love getting emails and uh, messages on Instagram from you all. It's just, it's so great. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into this podcast and to hear that it makes people's day or they look forward to a new episode being released every week or there's been a particular episode that's had a really impactful moment in their life or it's made them really think or appreciate something in a completely different way that's exactly what this podcast is here for and it's always great to hear that people are enjoying it and that the work that goes in behind the scenes to put it all together is worth it so thank you so so much and I would love to hear from you if you haven't written in already well the podcast is on a short break i will still be posting on instagram which is at joe's art history and i'll also be writing a little bit more hopefully publishing some things so do keep an eye out for announcements on instagram while i'm having a break as well i'll of course be continuing my day job for those of you that don't know i'm a senior art consultant for a creative studio called acrylicize so i'll be busy working away in the art world as i normally always am but I will be posting updates of my job and my travels and what I do regularly on there. So if you want to keep in touch that way, please do connect with me on Instagram. Finally, my name is Jo McLaughlin. I've been your host and your resident art historian for season two of Jo's Art History Podcast. And I look forward to welcoming you next time for a brand new season later in 2022. Until then, keep learning and remember, art is for all. Bye.